Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Ben. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we pick apart the local election results, we talk about what happened at Stormont, and you ask us about the Beergate scandal. So after a weekend of election results, we have a clearer picture than last time we recorded of what the lay of the land is. Ben Walker, our polling expert, is back to join us. And Freddie Hayward, our political reporter, is also here to discuss the fallout. And then we'll be talking separately about the Stormont results after this. So we're just sticking to to England, Scotland and Wales for, for this part of the podcast. The Conservatives were punished in their southern heartlands and some totemic seats in London. And Labour seemed to return to or just slightly fall back on its position in traditional sort of Labour voting, so-called red wall areas in the North and Midlands that it held in 2018. And actually, you know, 2018 is quite significant because let's not forget that the red wall hadn't crumbled by then. And the Lib Dems appear to have turned a corner. They've made some significant gains. They seem quite confident. And the Greens continued their sort of impressive stretch of local election advances, taking seats off the Tories and the Labour Party. So, Ben, first of all, let's go to you. Who, according to your analysis, was it a good and bad night for? Thank you for having me. It's, it's right. not. Oh, it's not clear cut. It's just too nuanced. It's really annoying because um, <laughs> I, I, I've been watching, covering, staying up all night for local elections since since 2013, 2014. And this is the local elections where every local authority is sort of swinging in a different way as each other. So you have Colchester and you have the Lib Dems and Greens gaining and then you have Stevenage and you have Labour gaining and then you have Swindon you have Labour gaining and then you have Nuneaton and Amber Valley and you have the Tories gaining. It's not uniform and it's, it's quite annoying. If you're looking at who's going to be the largest party at the next election, Labour's fulfilled that. Labour's going to be the largest party at the next election based on the results we've had here. But... I feel like the narrative sometimes doesn't line up with that because what are we comparing against 2018? 2018 was a time when Labour was winning, albeit barely, as you say, just the so-called red wall. And it was also at a time when Labour was polling 40% in the polls and the Tories were polling 40% in the polls. Now Labour's polling 40% and the Tories are polling, what, 36, 35, 34% sometimes, right? So, so, Tories have fallen since then. And I just want to sort of look at both the marginals, the red wall, and indeed the traditional ones. So perfect example of what's happened. Take, for example, Hartlepool. 
2018, the Tories led the vote over Labour there by 12 points. In 2021, they also led by 12 points. This year, Labour had a lead in Hartlepool of nine percentage points. That's a big swing. That's a significant shift in support. Take Wakefield as well. Last year, across the borough, not just the parliamentary seat, Labour had a lead in the popular vote of seven points. Now they have a lead of 24 points. That's big. That is a significant shift. Take Walsall in the black country in the West Midlands. Last year, Tories led it by 15 points. In 2018, Tories led it by five points. Again, this was a time when Labour was winning the so-called Red Wall. This year, just a few short days ago, Labour and the Tories were neck and neck. They tied in terms of the popular vote. So in these so-called Red Wall boroughs, you see a big recovery for Labour. If you want to talk who won the Red Wall, in terms of overall numbers, Labour did. But it's not uniform. It's not the same. Whilst Labour advanced in Dudley, they still were losing seats in Wolverhampton, Bushbury North, that, that you visited, Anoush. The Tories gained that, that ward off, yeah. uh, off Labour at the same time as losing neighbouring wards to Labour. It, it's a bit mixed. But if you even to look at the traditional targets, the old marginals, the ones that were fought over in 2010, 2015, like Swindon, Southampton, Plymouth, Milton Keynes. Last year in Milton Keynes, the Tories had a 10-point lead in terms of the overall vote. This year, Labour had a two-point lead. Swindon, last year, the Tories had a 25-point lead. This year, Labour had a three-point lead. And Derby, which hasn't seen a lead for Labour in quite some time, uh, in, in 2018, it was Con plus 9, 2019, Con plus 1, 2021, Con plus 4. This year, Lab plus 4. We are seeing some pretty significant shifts, not just in the so-called Red Wall, but in the older traditional marginals that often now get mixed because all of our politics is really sort of shaped around the Red Wall, isn't it? Yes. And actually, what's interesting is because there's this obsession with the Red Wall, which I know all of us, you know, slightly cringe at as a metaphor. That means that any symbolic wins in those kind of places for Labour or symbolic holds are particularly important in terms of the narrative and also in terms of the morale within the party. So that majority in Cumberland is really important because, you know, one of the three constituencies that that council covers is Workington, which was the hometown of Workington Man, which was this 2019 kind of caricature of the new working class Tory voter. And then also you had Labour holding Sunderland as well. Sunderland has become this sort of Brexit ground zero, hasn't it, in terms of our political discourse. And so, you know, those two things will be important for the party when it is trying to counter the narrative that it is falling back in the red wall or at least not making gains or you know, making the inroads or advances that it's supposed to if it's supposed to be winning those yeah. places back in a general if, if you want to go overall net terms in the Labour vote, in the Labour seats, they're standing still, OK? Mm. That doesn't sound as interesting or as exciting as, say, advancing big time like the Greens or the Lib Dems. But the Lib Dems are coming from a lower base. The Greens are definitely coming from a lower base. What is happening that's seeing such significant swings in both the so-called Red Wall and, indeed, in the traditional marginals is the Tory vote just collapsing? And that reflects the polls. The narrative may be different, but, but what happened on Thursday is a reflection of the national opinion polls that you are seeing. Labour is doing the bare minimum to be the largest party in Parliament. A chance for majority? Eh, not really. Nah, no chance, to be honest with you at the moment. They need to do so much more. They still have a brand issue. You know, for all, for all that Starmer leads Johnson on, you know, likability, it's just because he's been standing still. 
whereas Johnson and Tories have been falling back. And that's been reflected in the council seat wins. You know, it's all Tory fall as opposed to Labour rise. And I think every time I come on this podcast, I say that, don't I? Yeah, yeah. And and Freddie, I mean, Labour can take some confidence from its results in Wales and Scotland as well. It moved back to being the second party after the SNP in Scottish councils. And I think the Conservatives now have no councils in Wales. Yeah, no, I think that's right. When you actually look at the breakdown of what or where Labour won their seats, Wales was a massive part of that. Uh, them coming second in Scotland was also huge, mostly because of their huge collapse in uh, 2015. So them making inroads in Wales and in Scotland is also vital for their performance at the next general election. I mean, one of the problems that they've had in previous general elections is that they don't have a big bank of seats to sort of draw on in Scotland and in Wales. So them or their recovering in Scotland and, and Wales in these local elections, in, in some parts anyway, is cause for hope perhaps in the for the next general election. And we're coming on to Beergate in You Ask Us, but I mean... Is there any feeling of elation within the Labour Party or enthusiasm over these results or have they been overshadowed by by political events? Well, that's definitely how they want it to come across. They want to portray it as a huge victory, a turning point, as they always talk about. But I don't think that's what we've definitely seen. And that's not the feeling widespread around Westminster at all, really. What you've had is, as always happens with elections, the narrative is set earlier in the day and then... Mm people already make up their minds before the full results are in. So as, as Ben was pointing out, over the weekend, as the full results emerge, you actually saw Tory losses speed up and they, they got to the, the far end of what would be deemed as disastrous. So I, th- I think the narrative mm-hmm. was that in slightly favourable terms for the Tories and you didn't see the same positivity you might have seen if Labour's results came out a bit earlier or their good results came out a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think the Conservatives were sort of winning the spin game, weren't they, particularly in the morning after election night. But as the results came sort of flooding out, you had more and more voices within the Conservative Party, particularly in southern seats, expressing concern. Do you think that's going to be the area of contention for the Conservative Party going forward? Are they going to have to placate their backbenchers in the south? I think so, yeah. I mean, you don't ever want to read too much into off-the-record comments from Tory MPs saying they're disgruntled with the leadership because we've been having that for months now and we've not really seen a concerted effort uh, to bring down Boris Johnson. So, But with that said, it's not all just about a leadership change. There's also the policy question as well. And uh, what, for instance, you know, we've got the Queen's speech tomorrow. What are the government going to announce to, in, as you say, placate their backbench MPs from the South, but also to try and win back some of that traditional Tory vote that they may have lost on Thursday. Mm, It's interesting because they have already sort of been trying to placate them, haven't they, Um, in terms of those planning changes that Robert Jenrick, the former housing secretary, wanted to bring in. They've completely changed that formula so that house building won't be happening as heavily in those home counties, shire kind of areas. But that doesn't seem to have stopped this drop off in support in those seats that kind of the flood began in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. Ben, do you think the blue wall and the blue wall crumble is a real thing? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and a, a, a blue wall crumble. Gosh, we need to we need to, we need to make a dessert for that at the new statesman, don't we? Um, but but <laughs> eaten mess. Blue, blue, oh, oh yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> blue wall. It depends what you call the blue wall. If you think blue wall is Remain voting graduates, uh, forget it. Stick to just traditionally Tory seats, seats mm-hmm. that 
have mm. voted Tory in the past. Because one perfect example is in the north, the spa town of Harrogate and Nairsburg, where I'm from. That has, in local elections, never voted anything other than Conservative since 2011, since the arrival of the coalition. And this year, that changed. For the first time in 10, 12, 13 years, Harrogate and Nairsburg voted, if you tot up the results, for the Liberal Democrats. And a, th- a thousand vote majority. That's pretty significant. That's a sign of the trends to come, perhaps in the future, and indeed down south. Now, down south, what we're seeing is commuter belt towns, these types Mm. of places that, you know, that's an hour commute from London, an hour commute from basically a workplace that I think do show a risk of becoming a little bit more competitive, partly because demographics, you know, if you make a bit of money in London, you're more likely to live further afield. Um, Also, house prices have pushed you out of London. They've also pushed you out of Brighton. And that's why we saw significant labour gains on the Sussex coast in a borough called Worthing and Ada. 2017, Labour had no councillors here, uh, and now they have majority control of the council. That's Tim Lawton's seat and uh, Sir Peter Bottomley's. Keep an eye on those. But it's not just Labour, Lib Dems as well in in St Albans, across bits of Hertfordshire. You have also West Oxfordshire, basically David Cameron's former constituency, where you saw some pretty surprising big Lib Dem gains, and South Cambridgeshire. You know, you live in Cambridge, you move further afield, you decide to live in more like, like South Cambridgeshire, maybe Huntingdonshire. It's partly people moving and it's also partly of a change in what actually matters to people locally. Housing. Housing's now playing a bigger part. People now care about this. So half the people want new houses, the other half don't. And so so the Conservatives think, ah, let's make it a wedge issue. Let's stand for only one side. And, and that they are suffering as a consequence. If you look at a map of the East Coast main line and you go all the way up to Peterborough, a lot of the seats up for grabs were very blue. Now, a lot of them are very yellow and a fair chunk of them are very red as well. It is Commuterville that is seeing a bit of a swing against the Tories here. Milton Keynes, perfect example. These in 2019, very safe seats. Now, if I mentioned correctly earlier, Labour have a popular vote lead across the borough of two percentage points. Blue wall, traditional marginals, these are seeing similar issues and they are swinging as a consequence. They're going to be very interesting in the next few years. It's so interesting because it's sort of a an oxymoronic support for the Lib Dems, isn't it? Kind of, we don't mm. want house building here, but also our children can't buy houses <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think those two are definitely sort of driving that turn away from the Tories in some Absolutely. of those seats that you mentioned. Um, yeah. Not sure that those people are going to get what they want. But anyway, the most significant election result was, of course, away from Great Britain. It was that of the Stormont Assembly, where there was a historic victory for Sinn Féin. The first time a Nationalist Party has won the most seats and therefore has won the right to nominate the First Minister. Ben, I know your epic map is only for Britain, but you must have been following those results in Northern Ireland as well. And really what happened was there was a split in support for unionist parties, which meant that Sinn Féin Mm came first. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. If, if you were to summarise the local election results in England, Labour stood still and the Tories collapsed. In Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin stood still. Oh, you know, upped their vote share by one yeah. percentage point and the DUP collapsed. They fell by seven percentage points. Actually, that's actually quite the same, really, with uh, with England. Yeah, yeah. What you had is unionism, unionist parties. They really have how about this? I, w- I want you to sort of imagine the Tory party under, say, say Michael Howard or Ian Duncan Smith 
being the same Tory party is now. It doesn't change. It has done nothing. It's not shifted with the with the times. Its social attitudes have not changed. That's what the DUP has sort of done, and they've suffered as a consequence. Unionist voters today are not the unionist voters of the 1990s or the early 2000s. They've evolved. They've become a little bit more progressive, and there's less of them because you have that third share of the pie in Northern Ireland. Now, that's not necessarily nationalist or not necessarily unionist, and unionist parties are doing very little to appeal to them. But the nationalist parties aren't doing too bad, actually. Sinn Féin, um, they have been picking up a little bit of support amongst younger people, amongst less nationalist people, people less focused with questions of a border poll or anything that really you know, Westminster obsesses about. They're, they're, more, they're more concerned with the cost of living, health. The protocol do, does appear in, in those polls there. But really, yeah, Sinn Féin stood still and benefited as a consequence. They are the largest party in the Northern Irish Assembly. The Alliance Party, this is the party most popular amongst the young, most popular amongst that third slice of the pie. They saw a five-point increase in their, in their share of the vote. Not as much as the polls expected, but it, it is a historic result because, again... You have a nationalist party in first place and you have a non-aligned party in third. Um, it is exciting and who knows what the future holds for Northern Ireland. Mm, well, there's a really interesting piece on the New Statesman website at the moment by Jonathan Powell, who was the chief government negotiator in the Good Friday Agreement, who says that actually that alliance vote is probably the most crucial outcome of this election in the long term. And he makes a really interesting point, suggesting this election outcome might be the beginning of Northern Ireland going down the route of sort of traditional left and right parties rather than the old green and orange rivalries, which which is quite an interesting analysis of, of the results. You know, I do encourage our listeners to go and read what he's written. But, you know, although this is being written up as this seismic result, Really, the outcome, at least in the short term, is going to be stasis, isn't it? The executive had already collapsed back in February. The DUP are being very hard line now about refusing to enter into another power sharing coalition until that Northern Ireland protocol is, well, significantly reformed or, you know, probably from their perspective, scrapped. They call it an existential threat to Northern Ireland's place within the union. So really, are we just looking at nothing happening now, Freddie? I mean, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, is meeting the leaders of the main parties to try and get them to, to form a new executive. But that seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I think you are right. And not much has changed. I mean, I think from the perspective of Britain, people often see these elections in Northern Ireland from a completely constitutional perspective. But as Ben was talking about, Lots of issues came up as well during the election that weren't to do with the constitution. And that's demonstrated in the, the surge in the Alliance Party. I mean, Sinn Féin also talking about the economy, the cost of living. And then it actually on that constitutional issue itself, I mean, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has pointed out that unionists still hold more seats than the nationalists in the assembly. And why is that important? Well, because, I mean, according to the Good Friday Agreement, it's up to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to decide whether there is a reunification referendum. So it matters what he thinks. And in no sense, is is that going to happen anytime soon? So as you say, that debate hasn't gone forward too much, even if we've got this historic victory for Sinn Féin. And and so does it make it more likely that the UK government is going to make good on its, you know, it's always briefing the whole time that the next day it's going to unilaterally rip up the protocol? You know, there's constant threats to do that. It hasn't quite come <laughs> come through on those threats. But do you think this makes that more likely to happen? I mean, surely the political context in terms of Europe 
makes that you know far less appetizing for UK ministers picking that fight with the EU during a cost of living crisis when there's also an actual war going on 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 NATO's doorstep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think you're going to see much change there either. I mean, you may get, as you're seeing with Brandon Lewis this week, an increased engagement with Northern Ireland, particularly as the effects of not having a government in Northern Ireland really come to bear. I mean, you've got to remember when there is no executive, which has not um, been there since February, as you say, when the DUP left the executive, you do lose the capacity to make executive decisions. Not in full, but a significant part of the uh, Northern Irish government just just stops working. So it's stasis both in terms of the politics, but also in terms of the government as well. And I think that is going to eventually come come to bear and the UK government will have to try even harder to resolve that. And as you say, will they want to pick a fight with the EU within this broader political context? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think there will be a big announcement in the Queen's speech tomorrow. There might be a little bit on the Northern Ireland Protocol, but we're not going to see that immediately come to the fore. So as you said, I don't think massive amounts have changed or if things are going to change it's going to take a few months for that to come about yeah and of course it becomes a self-fulfilling thing doesn't it when they don't have an operating executive Mm. sort of limping on with this caretaker government it means that life only gets more frustrating for northern irish people you know they're subject to big societal problems at the moment the most extreme being nhs waiting times and ben we saw in the irish general election Sinn fein Mm. kind of campaigning on those bread and butter issues and doing well from it i think they got the most first preference votes in that election so you know it gives that party more and more opportunity to campaign on these kind of social affairs issues that are so affecting people's day-to-day lives in the run-up to the election, the, the polling out there is actually quite similar to how Brits across Great Britain feel about its cost of living, its rebuilding. There's a perception amongst the Northern Irish that they really have suffered as a consequence of COVID. And, and you know, if you rank the top three issues facing Northern Irish residents, rebuilding your country comes, I think, third or second. Northern Irish residents were not concerned with the constitution or borders or anything like that. Well, mm-hmm to 1% of voters, it did actually appear as an option, the constitution, and it was of great import to 1% of nationalists and uh, 1.4% of unionists. It it really is the cost of living, it's rebuilding, it's recovery from COVID. It is a bit protocol, but yeah, it's it's similar to the rest of the country. It's what's going on in your pocket that matters to, to Northern Irish residents. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask Us. us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is a question from Tom. Thanks for submitting a question. Is there an upside to Beergate for Keir Starmer? Not only is he getting practice of being asked questions he doesn't want to answer during an election about something no one genuinely cares about, but also his image of being posh and from Islington starts to degrade due to its continual proximity to the words beer and curry. Now, I get the impression that Tom had his uh, tongue firmly in his cheek when he wrote this question in, because, I mean, if you if you guys don't mind, I, I might just take the first stab at it, because I think that this suggestion that no one genuinely cares about it is very much an assumption. I, When I was out reporting, obviously it was before the Durham police had confirmed that they would be reinvestigating this beer and curry night that Keir Starmer and some Labour advisors had while they were working in Durham. I was out reporting and people did mention Partygate a lot, but what they often said, and I think I've set, bored you with this observation on the podcast before, but what they often said was, they're all as bad as each other. You know, people would explicitly say, oh, well, Labour would have done the same thing if they were in. So Partygate has had this impact, not only of dragging down the Tories' reputation, but dragging down in some areas of the country the reputation of politicians in general, which was already pretty rock bottom. So I think a story like this is only going to feed that kind of sentiment. And it may even give people an excuse to carry on supporting the Conservatives who they've nevertheless feel betrayed by or disappointed in because they can tell themselves, oh, well, Labour would have done the same or Labour's exactly the same. So I don't think this is something that no one genuinely cares about. And then the second part of the question about the proximity to the words beer and curry, you know, it is ironic, isn't it, that in our very, very basic (laughs) reading of politics, it used to be a good thing for a politician to seem like someone you'd go and have a beer with. And now it's a bad thing for a politician (laughs) to seem like someone you go and have a beer with. But that's how politics works. And it has worked to the disadvantage of Keir Starmer both times, I think. So I don't think there's an upside at all, not least because the Labour Party has worked very hard to build this reputation of him as this forensic, sensible, safe pair of hands. Lisa Nandy was out on the media round, calling him Mr. Rules. If you build your leader's reputation on being meticulous about following the rules and uh, and forensic about picking apart the prime minister's rule breaking, then you really do open yourself up to accusations of hypocrisy if you do anything that could possibly be interpreted as rule breaking. So I would say that it doesn't help Keir Starmer at all, but I do appreciate that Tom is probably being slightly um, ironic in his question. What do you guys think? Yes, I, I'm struggling to find an upside as well. I did allude to something in Morning Call this morning because I do think, well, on the bad side, it means that Labour's attack line on Partygate is completely undermined because the Tories can just scream hypocrite as soon as it occurs. And whether that's true or not, the different uh, Partygate versus Beergate, they're very different things and in very different circumstances. But nonetheless, it completely undermines their attack line on Partygate. 
But if that means that, as Jacob Rees-Mogg intimated last night, that the focus shifts to the cost of living, I think Labour have an opportunity there to really drill down on that and to try and hit the Tories on that issue. And I think one of the criticisms of Keir Starmer at recent PMQs before the prorogation was that he didn't focus on the cost of living over Partygate. And as we know, I think, Ben, you did a chart for us last week showing that one of the main, or if not the main reason that 2019 Tory voters moved away from the Tories on Mm. Thursday was the cost of living. So yes, I don't think there is an upside because it was helpful to contrast Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson on that point. But it doesn't mean it's completely bad because the other political issues in the narrative at the moment could actually suit Labour's priorities. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any upside to Keir Starmer, but if you want to be a cynic, there could be an upside to the Labour Party, which is that Keir Starmer demonstrates his principles by resigning, if kind. <laughs> and um, to be honest with you, we just had some polling this morning, right? And it, 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 from YouGov, great pollsters, very off the uh, gun there. If Keir Starmer is fined by police for Beergate, he should resign or remain in his role. 46% say resign, 32% say remain in his role. And interestingly, enough 54% of all voters not just those who've paid attention to the news 54% of all voters say he probably or definitely did break the rules just 21% think he didn't and Labour voters split 33% he did 42% he didn't interestingly enough as well uh, those who voted Labour in 2019 say if Keir Starmer is fined for the alleged breaking of lockdown rules. 48% of Labour voters say he should resign. 32% say he should remain in his role. I, I think I think the opportunity here for Keir Starmer to demonstrate his principles that, that he'd like to talk about are absolutely there, but that does require him to resign and uh, fall on his own sword. Whether he does that, who knows? But voters are definitely paying attention. They've noticed this. And uh, as Anoush said earlier, yes, voters now associate party gay the, the levels of perceived corruption during the coronavirus crisis, they all associate it as like, a, it's it's all you politicians. It's not the Tory politicians, it's all mm. of you. And La- Labour could have definitely benefited from this, but they didn't. And to be honest with you, actually, I say they could have benefited. I wondered if they can. I'm not entirely sure now, really. It, it, it feels like the expenses scandal all over again. Mm. You're all as bad as each mm. other, pigs in the trough. You've all done bad. I'm going to vote for different parties. But when that when that feeling was prevalent in 2009, it was the BNP and UKIP that saw saw big gains in the then Euro elections. This time around, we saw big gains for the Greens and the Dems. It might be worth looking at the uh, local election results through that lens, maybe a plague on both your houses by voters. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Ben Walker and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.